So last week, I gave you this theological sentence that summarizes uh, verses 1 and 2. And we're going to spend the first half of the lesson today talking about this some more because I like it. I like this. Uh, I like 1 Peter <laughs> 1 through 5, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And I, I'm pretty happy with the way that this is summarized here. And I want us to dwell on this, but I want us to see it from the text because obviously I can write definitions all day long and write happy things all day long, but that's not the Word of God. We want to see what the Word of God has to say. So let's think about this. So I want you to look at your text today and look at verses 1 and 2 in particular. And let's see if we can see in the text where these phrases come from. So um, the first one is eternity past. That marker only erases. What are the chances of that? Um, Eternity past. Where do you see eternity past in verses 1 and 2? Because obviously those exact words aren't in there. But where do we see it? According to the foreknowledge. Okay, so why do you why do you say that has to do with eternity past? All right, yeah, because we good, yeah. The word foreknowledge. Um, has that prefix for to it, and which means before something. Well, before what? And Mandy just said before our time, before creation, before uh, God created the world, before the foundation of the world. These are all phrases that Scripture uses when it talks about God's work in choosing people. And we can see this in Romans. So keep your finger here, and we're going to be turning a little bit uh, tonight. Turn to the book of Romans, chapter 8. This is... Uh, passage that the Roman Sunday School class is covering right now, Romans chapter 8, and we're going to look at verses 28 through 30, and to see how this idea of foreknowledge has to do with eternity past. And we are so limited as creatures, aren't we? Uh, All we can do is talk in terms of time because we are absolutely fixed in time. We can't get away from talking like with time terms because that's all we have. We're creatures. But God is not bound by time, is He? Now, He's present within time, but is He bound by time just like we are? No, He is not. He is sovereign over time. And I did a debate on that recently, last month, in fact, and you can check that that out online if you want. Um, But it's very important that we understand that God does not live a creaturely existence within time as we do. So let's look at this from Romans 8. Would someone read verses 28 through 30? Who's got it? All right. Lots of amazing things to see in there, and I suggest you... Check out the Sunday School lesson on this from last week or this past Sunday. Mark taught on just verse 28 for the whole hour. And coming this Sunday, are you going to be so ambitious as to do two verses, Dean? Okay, just... Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. There, there's, a, there's a lot going on in these verses, and uh, that Sunday School class is going through that. 
But we see in verse 29 something about God's foreknowledge. What are the things that we see? Okay, so foreknowledge is connected to His predestination. Okay, those two items are connected. But what is the content of God's foreknowledge? Okay, people, right? It doesn't talk about events that God foreknew. It doesn't talk about decisions that God foreknew. It doesn't talk about items that God foreknew. It talks about people that God foreknew. Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. Predestined to what? Well, to be conformed to the image of Christ. And then verse 30, it's this chain. He not only predestined them, but that group of people, He also called that group of people. He also justified that group of people. He also glorified. So one way that we can think of this, I'll use a different color, is you have all of humanity that has ever existed or will ever exist. Imagine that's the big circle. Within that circle is a group of people that Romans 8 verse 30 applies to, because we know that not all people are predestined for salvation, right? Not all people are called in the sense that they will believe. I mean, all people are called to the gospel, but not all people are called in such a way that it will result in salvation. We know that not all people are justified, right? Because that would be universalism, the belief that everyone goes to heaven. It doesn't matter what you do with God. It doesn't matter what you do with Jesus. But all people are going to heaven. Well, that's not the case. Only some will be justified, and only some will be glorified. And I hope that you can see here in verse 30 that it's a guarantee that all who are predestined will go all the way through to glorification. Not those whom He predestined. Some will end up being glorified. It's all that He predestined out of the whole, will be glorified. They'll be called, they'll be justified, they will be glorified. And this is all wrapped up in God's foreknowledge. And so when Peter in his letter opens up talking about being chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, we have to believe that this is what he has in mind, how God in His grace and in His sovereign grace has chosen individuals according to his foreknowledge, because he knew them. There's a relationship aspect to them. Remember, it's not knowing events, it's knowing people. So, thoughts or questions on that? (laughs) Probably a lot, but uh, any that you would like to share? Making sense? Jerry? Yeah. Yeah, those who Yeah. Yep, right. Yes. Yeah, God's foreknowledge and his predestination, all that takes place before creation, right? For and pre, well what's it before? What is it what does it precede? Creation itself. Calling and justification, that happens within creation, doesn't it? 
People exist, and within time, they are called and they are justified when they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then glorification, that happens in the future. So past, present, future, God is in control of these things, isn't He? And it's important to realize, too, that God, not being subject to time as we are, He doesn't foreknow things and then predestine things. He doesn't predestine things and then foreknow things. He doesn't foreknow people and then predestine them. He doesn't predestine people and then foreknow them. These things that God has done in eternity past weren't done in sequence because God is not bound by time, which can get really confusing in a hurry, can't it? Because we're so limited, we can only think in sequence. But God being outside of time, all of these things are absolutely sure because He has said that they would be so in His great sovereignty. Okay? So that's that eternity past aspect. That's where we get that in 1 Peter when he says they were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Okay? Next thing I want us to look at in 1 Peter verses 1 and 2 uh, from here is chose, he chose them to be saved. Where do we see that? Of course, it's tied up in the idea of foreknowledge, but where else do we see that in the text of 1 Peter 1 verses 1 and 2? Okay, they were the sanctification of the Spirit or the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that the Spirit is the one who sets them apart. So this is the idea of salvation, of course, is seen right here in verse 2 in multiple layers. It's not just the sanctifying work of the Spirit, it's also the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. That has to do with salvation, doesn't it? Those who are elect, yeah, so that's in the ESV, it says to those who are elect. Perhaps in other translations, it says the word chose or chosen. Do you see that in yours? Anybody got a translation that says that? Maybe, maybe not. Okay. Yeah, some translations put it at the front of verse 1. Others put it at the end of verse 1. Or it'll say chosen or elect. Okay, so there's the idea of God's choosing, right? Uh, the ESV reads this way, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And who's doing the choosing here? Yeah, Let's maybe be a little clearer. Who's doing the choosing? God. Okay, all right. So like a little measly little, God is. Uh, no, yeah, God is doing the choosing according to what? His foreknowledge, right? According to His foreknowledge. So this is a, an election that has to do with salvation. We are chosen to be sanctified by the Spirit. We're chosen to be uh, sprinkled with the blood of Christ. And there are many times in Scripture, of course, that God sovereignly selects certain people for certain tasks. I mean, Israel is a great example, isn't it? Out of all the nations of the earth, God founded, created, and chose Israel, His sovereign work for His sovereign purposes. And as we look at what we were chosen for here in verse 2, being sanctified and being sprinkled with the blood of Christ, we recognize this is talking about our salvation. Thinking about the blood of Christ specifically, that's our propitiation. That's what covers us from the wrath of God. That's the basis for our justification. The reason why we're declared innocent is because of Christ's blood. That's what Romans 5 verse 9 says, is that we're saved from the wrath of God through the blood of Jesus. And we know that the blood of Jesus is the new covenant. Remember Jesus when He instituted the Lord's Supper? This is the new covenant of 
What did he say? My blood. My blood. So this has to do with our salvation. Absolutely. Okay. This word sanctified. It's pretty easy to spot that in verse 2, isn't it? Because most of your translations will say sanctification or the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. What is the sanctification by the Holy Spirit? What's that talking about? Okay, yeah, so that's definitely one aspect is our growth. There are two ways mainly that Scripture talks about sanctification. Uh, The main way is what normally comes to our minds, progressive sanctification, where as we live this life and we're being conformed to the image of Christ, just like Romans 8 was talking about, we are going through spiritual ups, spiritual downs, but through it all, God is sovereignly, faithfully, lovingly holding on to us and causing us to grow in Christ. But what's the other way that Scripture talks about sanctification that is not progressive, but instantaneous? Yeah. And when does that happen? Yeah, at the moment of salvation. So there's a sense in which we can say in the present tense, we are being sanctified. But there's also a sense in which we can say we have been sanctified, right? Now, if someone says, I have been sanctified, and they're talking about progressive sanctification, you should go ahead and call that person out because no one ever arrives in their growth in Christ, right? You can never say, well, I've been sanctified. I am, I've become Christ-like, and that's it. I'm done. <laughs> uh, that happens uh, when we are glorified. Then our sanctifying work is done because sin will be no more. But let's look at these two aspects. Uh, one place is 2 Thessalonians 2.13. Who would get that verse? I'm going to give three verses. Who can get 2 Thessalonians 2.13? Okay, Joseph. Hebrews 13.12. Who can get that one for us? Hebrews 13, verse 12. Melissa? And then Romans 6.22. Jerry, you want to get that one? Romans 6.22. So these first two verses are about... The past tense sanctification, when we were set apart by God, the Holy Spirit, as His holy ones. So, Joseph, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, what does it say? God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. So, We see the exact same theme as we have seen in Peter already, and it's through what? For salvation through, what does it say, Joseph? Through sanctification. So, um, again, you kind of have both ideas here where from the beginning you're set apart. That's what that word saint means, by the way. We're all saints in Christ. That word means holy one. God has set you apart from the world and declared you to be a holy one. You are sanctified in that sense, and it's through sanctification, that we obtain salvation, it says. Hebrews 13, 12. Melissa, what about that one? Okay, we are sanctified through the blood of Jesus. Peter's talked about the the sprinkling of blood. And this is, of course, the blood of Jesus. We're sanctified, set apart, marked as holy because we are in Him who has died on our behalf and subsequently sanctified us, caused us to be called holy because we are found in Him. What about Romans 6.22, Jerry? Okay, 
All right, so um, we're freed from sin, and now we are free to be sanctified in Christ. Uh, This is a great section of Romans uh, 6 through 8, talking about the sanctification of the believer as we grow in Christ. After we've been initially sanctified, declared holy by God, we are now called to live holy. God calls us holy and now says, go live holy. And we're going to see that a lot in 1 Peter. And we are able to do that because we've been freed from sin. So we're initially set apart by God as saints, and we continue to grow in holiness leading up to the moment of our final salvation. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. Uh, We get that idea in Scripture in a variety of ways, but sanctification is one of those. We've been sanctified, we are being sanctified, and ultimately when we're glorified, we will be ultimately sanctified in that all sin is removed. And when we see Christ, we will be like Him. That's the promise of 1 John 3. So uh, sanctification, big theme in here too. Carrie. Yeah, so um, great question. We know from these passages that we've looked at this evening, no one outside of that circle will be saved. Only those who have been foreknown and predestined and called will be justified and glorified. Now, who are those people? (laughs) Okay, good, 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 good. That's right. We don't know. I think it was Spurgeon that said, if I could go around and... uh, you know, I see everyone who has been chosen, marked, I would just preach the gospel to them. But we don't know because they were not chosen according to our foreknowledge. They were chosen according to the Father's foreknowledge. Therefore, we go through, we go around and we preach to every man, and that's God's business who gets saved. Our job is to be faithful in being ambassadors for Christ. That's our role. Now, as far as where do you reach a point where basically you say, I'm casting pearls before swine and say, I'm, I'm done. That line will be different for everyone. Um, on a recent episode of Ask Pastor John, uh, John Piper's podcast, he answered that very question. Someone asked because he said, look, I know what I was like before Christ, and I'm thankful people didn't give up on me. <laughs> he said, there are countless times they should have given up on me from a human perspective, and they didn't. So when, and I think it was someone who particularly works with youth, when do I say, that youth is no good. <laughs> that youth is a child of the devil forever. I'm done with that person. Um, and I think the biblical answer at the end of the day is, that's between you and the Lord. It is a conscience issue. Because there, obviously you can't squander your resources, even, even your time. Um, and you need to move on at a certain point. But that's just, that line's going to be different for everybody. Jim. And that's exactly right. Yep. And actually, you know, it wasn't an Ask Pastor John. It was um, John MacArthur. It was a Q&A with John MacArthur. That's what it was. And that's exactly what he said, is he said, look, you can get to the point, and there should be a point 
where you need to move on in most cases. If someone's not going to believe, um, you know, outside of being a family member, close friend that you're just going to be with lifelong. For other people, there does come a point where you just kind of need to move on, but you never stop praying. That's it. Dean. And God will give certain people certain burdens for other people, too. Um, God is in the business of laying things on your heart, and it's, that's between you and the Lord to take that ball and run with it. We're not all missionaries to Indonesia, obviously, right? Uh, so, um, the Lord is in the business of putting His people where He wants them, okay? All right, uh, the next thing I want us to see in the this, in this Scripture here as we think about this definition, the Father in eternity past chose His people to be saved and sanctified as exiles on the earth in obedience to Jesus Christ through the Spirit's application of His redemptive work. I want us to see the exiles on earth part in there. Where do we see that in verses 1 and 2? Okay, so uh, what translation is that? Is that NASB? Okay, so it says aliens. And ESV says exiles. So again, that one's pretty straightforward. Uh, elect exiles, chosen exiles on the earth. And we know it's on the earth because it goes on to list the places where they're living, <laughs> all these different regions of Asia Minor. Um, there are two ways, and I talked about this last week. Let's see if we can remember some of this. There are two ways in which the recipients of Peter's letter are exiles or aliens on the earth. What are those two layers to this. Yes, they are exiles of the dispersion. They've been persecuted and they fled to Asia Minor. Uh, I gave you the hypothesis last week that perhaps they were in Rome and Claudius was the one who drove them out. So in a very literal sense, they are exiles. They're refugees. But... Um, What's the other sense, the spiritual sense, in which they are exiles? That's it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they were not at home in that culture, right? <laughs> Just like today... No matter what culture you're in, in the world, Christians are not at home in those cultures, ultimately, because our home is where? In heaven. And we'll see that here in verse 4. You see where our inheritance is, according to verse 4, kept in heaven for you. Uh, Philippians 3, Paul talks about his citizenship, and his citizenship is 
in heaven. So that means while we're on the face of the earth, wherever God has us, we're not at home. We are, in that sense, spiritually exiles. We're aliens to the world and to the culture. The culture doesn't agree with us because they don't agree with Christ. There's a natural tension there because this isn't our home, and we don't agree with the world. It goes both ways, and Christ makes all the difference. Fifthly, fifth statement out of here to see in the text is, in obedience to Jesus Christ. What do we see in verses 1 and 2? In obedience to Jesus Christ. <laughs> Good, yeah, pretty obvious. Or uh, the ESV says, for obedience to Jesus Christ. Okay. So according to this text, why did God the Father choose us? Yeah, yeah. He, wanted, he wanted, wanted to and to obey His Son, Jesus Christ. We have been saved so that we would love Jesus and keep His commandments, right? That's why we've been saved. Now, obviously, the, the big umbrella answer to why were we saved, why were we chosen, is because God is glorifying Himself, and He has seen fit to do that through His people that He has chosen. But as we look at it in just a really simple application of why were we saved and why are we still here as exiles? For obedience to Jesus Christ, to obey Jesus Christ. And this is one of Peter's focuses in this letter. Stay in chapter 1, but look down at verse 22 and 23 with me. So 1 Peter 1, drop down to verse 22. It says, "...having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth..." For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. He sees salvation in verse 22 as an obedience to the truth, and it's not just Peter who talks this way. There's also a passage or two from Paul where he talks about believing in the gospel is obedience to the truth. It's an obedience thing. And that's not something that we do once and then we never do again. <laughs> For the Christian, our obedience to the gospel is day by day at that same level as far as believing in Jesus. Uh, we live by faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. So we're continually looking to Jesus, our Savior. And we're also learning more about the gospel. And as we study and learn more and grow, there's more elements to all of this that we are believing and giving ourselves to in obedience to the truth. And then turn to chapter 4, same book, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 15. Would someone read verses 15 to 17 for us? Chapter 4, verses 15 to 17. Who's got it? Okay, go ahead. All right, so he sees, again, what we read in verse 1, he sees our salvation as coming about through obedience to the truth, and he sees the rejection of the world 
the world's rejection of the gospel, more accurately, as disobedience to the gospel, those who do not obey the gospel. So it's, even from the very beginning, our disposition is one of obedience to Jesus. And there's an obedience to the gospel that we're called to, obedience to Jesus Christ. Thoughts on that? There are two more phrases to highlight and to break down, but thoughts on that before we move on to the next one. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, current events are just getting crazier and crazier, huh? <laughs> and, uh, you know, a lot of the things that are going on in the culture are helpful. It's making the dividing line clearer. And though it's not fun, it's frustrating, it's painful, it's sad, it's enraging sometimes, we also have to see what God is doing in the world and rejoice in that. And I do think one of the things He's doing is making the dividing line clearer, not just in our culture, but in our churches. We're not going to go there. Carrie, don't get me started on that stuff, Carrie. All right. Sixthly, through the Spirit's application... The Spirit's application, where do we see that in verses 1 and 2 here? The application of the Spirit. It's pretty obvious, just read the phrase, what does it say? Very good, the sanctifying work or the sanctification of the Spirit. So who's the one doing the action? Yeah, whose work is it? Yeah, God the Holy Spirit, it's His work. The Holy Spirit is personally involved in our initial sanctification. Remember the two ways we talked about sanctification? One is when you're first saved and you're set apart and you're declared a saint. Um, We are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Um, When Paul writes his letter to the uh, first letter to the Corinthians that we've been going through in the sermon series, he talks about them as being sanctified individuals, which is just wild, isn't it, as we've gotten to know them more, <laughs> that they would ever be called sanctified in any sense? Well, how were they sanctified? Because the Holy Spirit applied Jesus' redemptive work to them. They were sanctified in an instant through the Spirit's work. Titus chapter 3, one of the most amazing passages in the New Testament, talks about how we were in our sins, but the Holy Spirit, what did He do? He washed us, renewed us, He's the one who's come along and He's applied Jesus' work to us. We were initially sanctified by the Holy Spirit. But are we also continually sanctified by the Holy Spirit? Yeah, okay, yeah, easy one. Yes, 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 yes. And that's the one we're probably more familiar with, the, the work of the Spirit we're more familiar with from Scripture and from experience. Because day by day, the Holy Spirit is doing what? He's convicting us. He's teaching us from the Word of God. He's bringing fruit about, the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5. So the Holy Spirit is the one sanctifying us, not just in an instant at salvation, being set apart for Christ, but also day by day, bringing about salvation and sanctification. The Father in eternity past chose His people to be saved and sanctified as exiles on earth in obedience to Jesus Christ through the Spirit's application of His redemptive work. And that's the last phrase that we'll highlight, His redemptive work. Where do we see that in the text? 
It's the blood of Jesus, that's right. His blood, sprinkled by His blood. When we see references to the blood of Jesus in the New Testament, are we talking about mystical blood? What are we talking about if it's not mystical, magical blood? What are we talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Now, what, what kind of life did Jesus live? Yeah, sinless, perfect, pure, holy, absolutely holy. Could that be said of any other human? So what kind of death are we talking about when we talk about Jesus' death? An undeserved death? Sacrificial? Because, yeah, it was undeserved, therefore He had to lay it down. And substitution, which gives us what? It gives us His righteousness. This is that word imputation. His righteousness imputed to us. So when we read the words, His blood, the sprinkling with His blood, it's not that Jesus had magic blood and then it sprinkled on you and now you're a magic person. (laughs) It's talking about something much deeper, something much richer. It's not just blood like He was cut a little bit and dripped out. It's talking about His death, that He laid down His life in exchange for our life, an undeserved sacrificial death functioning as a substitution to provide us righteousness. All of that is tied up in the phrase, His blood. Not just a little blood, but life in exchange for life. God chose us to be saved, and this happens in time through the application of Christ's death on our behalf, and the Holy Spirit does that. He sanctifies us by putting Christ's redemptive work on our account. So the Father in eternity past chose His people to be saved and sanctified as exiles on earth in obedience to Jesus Christ through the Spirit's application of His redemptive work. It's a good theological statement, huh? (laughs) And isn't it amazing that it's all there in just these two verses? All of that biblical theology right here in these two verses. Absolutely incredible. And it doesn't get uh, shallower in 1 Peter. We keep getting deeper and deeper. The text is getting thicker and thicker. There's so much here to see. But before we move on to verses 3 to 5, any questions or thoughts on this statement as a whole or things that we talked about? Because I don't want to move on before, unless there are questions. Sure. Should we put the Sunday school teacher on the spot and give her Bible trivia? Because you were gone last week. You, didn't, you weren't in the class last week. And I asked a Bible trivia question of the, of the class regarding that. There were three times in the Old Testament, three occasions, I should say, when people, actual people were sprinkled with the blood. So not just on the altar, but people. Can you think of any of those times? Yes. Good. Yeah. That, that may have been better than what we did last week. I don't know if anybody came up with one last week. Um, the cleansing of the lepers was another one. You guys remember that one? But the main one that we talked about was from Exodus 24, which was when the covenant was introduced to the people, and they sprinkled blood on the people. They were entering into covenant relationship with Yahweh. And so we understand the sprinkling of the blood 
Here being, we're entering into covenant relationship with Yahweh, but now it's through the finished work of Christ. We weren't sprinkled with the blood of a goat or a bull, were we? Praise the Lord. We were sprinkled with the precious blood, what Peter says, verse 19, precious blood of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, forever forgiven, purified, sanctified in one instant, because according to God's foreknowledge, He chose us. And according to verse 3, caused us to be born again. You want to talk about that? Because I'm ready. Carrie, go ahead. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in John fourteen or sixteen. Jesus said, my peace I leave with you. And um, he said, in the world you will have trouble. That's our promise, is in the world we will have trouble. So as we go out into the world and do what we're called to do, which is represent Christ in the culture, uh, what do we get in exchange from the world? Yeah, trouble, (laughs) right? Trouble. From the world we won't get peace. We certainly won't get grace. We're not going to get peace. Yet from Christ, we have peace. And He tells us to go out into the world and expect trouble. Um, Peter's going to tell us over and over again to live life for Christ with the peace that He gives amid persecution. So we always have to be careful to find all of our peace in the gospel of Christ. And never look anywhere outside of that expecting peace because we can't find peace apart from the gospel. All of our peace is found in the gospel. And there will be, certainly be trying times. I mean, there, and that, that's not to say that, oh, we're just going to feel happy and positive all the time because we have the gospel. But what it does mean is that we can have a joy and a peace that surpasses all understanding. This is Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, make your request known to God. And there's a promise in verse 7, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will not make you feel happy. That's not what it says. But it will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. And so the promise that we have is to be guarded from all the ways that the world could pull us down. We're guarded in Christ. And there will be seasons where we feel like ultimate warriors. We'll have, we'll have spiritual successes. We'll see someone come to know the Lord. We'll see things happen in our family, in our neighborhood, in our church, whatever it may be. 
And there will be times when it just seems so parched and dry. But Jesus never ceases to be that fountain of living water, and we can continue to go to Him. And through these things, even if we don't feel happy, we still possess grace and peace, don't we? So we need to rely on the promises. There's that great hymn, Standing on the Promises of Christ my King. And uh, thank God for the times where you really feel it. <laughs> and hang on to Christ in the times when you don't, okay? Jim. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that that word exiles that Peter uses, we haven't been displaced from our homes yet, so we're not literal exiles in that sense. But this world's not our home. We don't have peace with the world. God hasn't made all things new and put all of His enemies under His feet in the sense that all things have been accomplished. There are still so many things to be fulfilled. Christ is still going to return and strike down His enemies and establish a new heavens and a new earth. That's when we will ultimately experience true, um, eternal, everlasting, uninterrupted peace. But as we are in this body of flesh, dealing with sin within and without, there's going to be effects of that, and we're going to feel it, because we're exiles on earth longing for our spiritual home. Listen. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> we need to embrace our creaturely limitations, don't we? <laughs> when we try to understand the big picture of the things God's doing, we just don't know. We need to trust God. And that doesn't look like um, blind ignorance. That looks like reading the Word of God, seeing what God has called you to do in your context with your areas of influence that He has given you, and trusting Him with all the results, going to sleep at night, because God's sovereign and He's good, right? I've said it before. I'll say it a bunch more times. He is both sovereign and good. If He was just one of those, we'd be in trouble. But since He's both, we can sleep at night. Dean.
Yeah, for some of us, this is a hard statement. It's not obedience to God to know what's going on in the news. Now, for those of us who like the news, it's like, well, but I want to do it. And that's fine. It's not sinful to know what's going on in the news. But just know it's also not a step of obedience either. You don't have to do it. You don't have to get up and know what's going on in the world. You don't have to try to be omniscient about all the things that are going on in the world. Because what, that, I mean, that has an effect on you, doesn't it? When you have all that knowledge of what's going on in the world, it has an effect on you. And there are times, perhaps long seasons of time, where we just need to unplug. Because God hasn't called us to know everything that's going on. (laughs) And we can just unplug, and if God wants us to know, we trust that He'll let us know. (laughs) And we can focus more on our areas of influence, okay? Let's get to verse 3. Let's see if we can do verse 3. We have... Twelve minutes left. Would someone read verse 3 for us? Okay. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. All right. So this is um, what can be called a doxology. Who knows what a doxology is? There's a, a hymn titled The Doxology. <laughs> no, that's not it. The, yeah, but more specifically, it's a statement that ascribes praise or glory to God. So it's an ascribing of glory to God. And we see that this is a doxology because it starts with what word in verse 3? <laughs> Blessed. We think of those songs, blessed be the name of the Lord, or bless the Lord, O my soul. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a doxology. And he is, Peter, the apostle, is reminding his readers of reality, an objective reality concerning their salvation. These people have been displaced. They aren't home. This isn't just talking about Rome or wherever they were. This is talking about spiritually, too. They are displaced people, so he's reminding them of this objective reality amid all of their trials and all the things they're going through as they are wanderers, as they're exiles. Why is he saying, blessed be the Father or praise to the Father? That's because our saved state, our salvation, becoming Christians, has taken place according to His great mercy and to His foreknowledge. It's the same word, that according word. You see it back in verse 2, that we were chosen according to the foreknowledge. And then you see here in verse 3 that we were born again according to the mercy. Saved according to the foreknowledge, or chosen, rather, according to the foreknowledge. Born again according to the mercies of God. And this is a very personal salvation. This verse doesn't apply to the world. This verse doesn't apply to anybody who's not a Christian. This verse only applies to Christians. And because this is an objective reality of what has happened in our common salvation, it applies to every Christian. Every one of you tonight, if you are a born-again believer, 
You can say, praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because according to His great mercy, He has caused me to be born again. It's a very personal thing, and it's comprehensive, meaning it's every Christian. He has caused us to be born again. Now, this verse, and particularly the phrase, He has caused us to be born again, has affected my understanding of God's sovereignty and salvation more than any other verse in the Bible. And it's within the last five years, this verse has just really come up over and over again in my thinking. Because when we think about the uh, term born again, which is very common in our modern-day vernacular, born-again Christians, was it Jimmy Carter who really pressed that home? Uh, Born-again Christians. Uh, When we think about that phrase, it's a good phrase. It's not just Peter who uses it in the Bible. We see it in other places. But it's a very important illustration of our salvation. I'm going to give you some verses. Um, We don't have time to turn there tonight. Maybe next week we'll pick back up and look at some of these. But born again, we see this coming up from John. And the the only other author of uh, Scripture who talks about this phrase, born again, is John, and he talks about it several times. John chapter 1, verse 13. So the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 13. John also recorded that statement between Jesus and Nicodemus. What chapter is that? Three, good. John chapter 3, that's verses 3 through 8, when Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born from above, you must be born again. John 3, 3 to 8. And then in John's epistle, 1 John, he talks about this spiritual birth several times. 1 John 2, 29, and chapter 3, verse 9, chapter 4, verse 7, chapter 5, verse 1, chapter 5, verse 4, chapter 5, verse 18. In all of those places... John is talking about the spiritual birth. Who wrote their letters slash gospel first? Peter or John? Who wrote first? Do you remember last week when Peter wrote? Do you have that chart of 1 Peter? It has the date on there. 63 A.D. When did John write? Way later. Yeah, like 90 A.D. So, Peter is the first one to write Scripture. I mean, of course, Jesus taught it, but John's gospel didn't record that until much later. Peter was the first one to write down this idea of being born again. So, not necessarily chronologically when events happened, because, of course, Jesus preceded 1 Peter and taught it then. But as far as writing down Scripture, Peter's the first one to put this in written Scripture, this idea of being born again. Now, what has fascinated me is, Why did Jesus, when talking to Nicodemus, why did He use the illustration of being born when it comes to our salvation, when it comes to being saved? I mean, you think about Jesus, of course, is God, and God knows how many things? All things, okay. (laughs) He knows everything. And Jesus is how wise? All wise, totally wise, okay. So here he is as God, knowing all things, being perfectly wise. He could have used any illustration he wanted to perfectly illustrate a point. And he chose birth. Isn't that interesting that he chose birth? How is being saved like being born? Okay, new life, new beginning, good. 
Let's keep plumbing the depths. What else? You think that's important when it comes to salvation? You don't do it to yourself? Who, who does it to you? When, so when you're born, how do you get born physically? <laughs> so when you're, when you're physically born, conceived, by the power of God, your mother and father chose to bring you into this world, right? God allowed them to do that. That's right. Yes. Absolutely helpless. <laughs> yes. Right, right. Yet getting into the world was not their choice. How many of you got to cast a vote about coming into this world? Right? None of you. And it says in our text here in verse 3, it's very, I don't know, very straightforward. God has caused us to be born again. He is the cause of our birth. Your mother and father were the cause of your birth. You didn't have a vote. They did it. Those who are born again, who are born of the Spirit, they were born because God caused them to be born. Are we comfortable with that statement? (laughs) We should be. Because God is so good, isn't He? And if this is what God has chosen to do to glorify His name, then it's good. And we're secure in Christ. And that's right where Peter goes in the following verses. But let's think about this. I mean, our parents, by God's power, chose to bring us into the world. And God, by His power, chose to bring us into this spiritual life. He caused us to be born again. It's simply saying that God gave birth to you and you are His. Isn't that good? (laughs) He has beget you spiritually. And this all took place according to what in verse 3? According to your vote, your choice, His mercy. His mercy. So if we're looking to understand our salvation, this is pretty clear, isn't it? That God, according to His mercy, caused you to be born again. He chose you according to His foreknowledge. And He caused you to be born again according to His great mercy. You think he's controlling this salvation stuff? I mean, Peter's very expressive. We're only three verses in, and we have these big phrases here that have huge implications. And we can rest in this. We can be very, very joyful. We can be very, very feeling secure in this because this is God's work. He caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We've been given a living hope, meaning we're headed home. What's our hope? (laughs) It's that there's more than just this life. We're born again to hope in Jesus. Jesus is living, right? That's what He's saying in verse 3. Jesus was resurrected. Because Jesus is alive, our hope is alive. Because Jesus is living, our hope is living. Our hope is Jesus. So we have a living hope, and Jesus is coming back as we continue to read. It says, verse 4, "...to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time." It's going to be revealed when Jesus, is return, or when Jesus returns. 
So at Jesus' second coming, our living Savior, when He returns to this place, there's an ultimate culmination of our salvation as we're glorified with Him. That's our blessed hope, according to Titus 2. It's the culmination of our salvation. And in the meantime, our inheritance is in heaven, and it's secured by Jesus, our living Savior. So we're exiles on the earth as our inheritance waits in heaven, secured by the living Christ. We'll start here next week. There are a couple more things I want to say before we wrap up, though. This inheritance in verse 4, look, he uses three different adjectives to say no one can do anything to it. It's imperishable, undefiled, it will not fade away. Pretty comprehensive statement that you are secure in your salvation, isn't it? (laughs) Your salvation can't be touched because you are saved according to what? And you are chosen according to His foreknowledge. None of that has anything to do with you getting in and holding yourself in there. It has to do with God's power in bringing you there. Nothing can affect your inheritance. And verse 5, I love verse 5, we are being guarded by God's power through faith. Up until the moment when Jesus returns, we're being guarded. (laughs) Guarded. This is God actively doing something on our behalf with His power through faith. Salvation is given to us on the basis of faith, And we continue to live by faith. That is God's powerful means of guarding and protecting us until the day of redemption. Our salvation cannot be touched, broken, hindered, defiled. It can't fade away. It's not subject to elements. There's no expiration date. God is guarding it, meaning He's perfect in His guarding because everything God does is perfect. Salvation is of the Lord. From eternity past to eternity future. And isn't that just a sweet, sweet truth for those living as exiles? (laughs) For those who have been displaced, for those who are out of their home, to have this objective reality delivered to them that salvation is of the Lord, they are secure, there's something waiting for them that they are waiting for also, and it will culminate, it will happen, it will be completed. An amazing opening to a letter. Pretty cool stuff. Oh, why don't I pray and then we'll be done for this evening. Father, again, we thank You so much for our salvation. We agree with Your Word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because according to Your great mercy, Lord, You have caused us to be born again, and we have been born again to a living hope. We ask that day by day as we live as exiles in this place, as we, we don't click with the culture because we have Christ, that day by day we wouldn't seek our peace or our encouragement from the world, but that we would be renewed in our hearts and in our minds, that we'd be guarded in our hearts and minds by Your power in the gospel through our living Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask that there would be an overflow of hope and joy in this church because of what you've done individually, what you're doing in us corporately, that we would seek to honor you in all that we do. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.